Hello and welcome to the Church's True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction podcast series. I'm Rob Terry. This is episode two on the Old Testament. And today's episode should be a relatively low risk way to, to get into some of the details of, of this, of the metaphorical paradigm approach where we, where we start with a kind of a fundamentalistic traditional testimony or view of the, of this scripture and then as we as we see different facts and science and and historical facts that kind of present problem or challenges to this paradigm then we then we shift to a par- metaphorical paradigm and while retaining the truths and, and beauty that we see in the scripture and I say relatively low risk because I think a lot of us have already done this and so we can kind of see how this works. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's start with a fundamentalistic 19th century view of the Old Testament, okay? So Moses wrote the first five books of the, of the Bible through Revelation. The Genesis, uh, we take things literally. So the Adam and Eve and creation story is literal. The earth is 6,000 years old. And then further from, from Joseph Smith revealed scripture for the Latter-day Saints, we also know that Adam and Eve saw angels and were taught the doctrine of Jesus Christ and were baptized. We assume that from the Book of Mormon that this knowledge of Jesus Christ is existing and that and Old Testament prophets taught about Jesus Christ and, and knew about Jesus Christ, and that's where the Book of Mormon says plain and precious parts were taken out. We have the Adam Andai Amen, which is in Missouri. Adam and Eve made sacrifices there. And then through Noah's flood, we assume that's how they got to the old world. Once they get back to the old world, soon after that, we have the Tower of Babel story. That's where humans were dispersed and languages um, were created, and, and humans kind of went out into different parts of the world. We also have an explanation for black skin color from the Curse of Cain, that was preserved through the curse of Ham, through through the flood. We believe that the Old Testaments had the same priesthood that we have today and that they passed it on in the same way that we do, although we do make allowances for periods of apostasy and restoration. When the Israel, when northern Israel was conquered by Syria and the ten tribes were were kind of destroyed, we believe that's a, a literal thing that the Lost ten tribes are out there somewhere in the world that in a state that we can go find them again and convert them to the gospel. So this is a 19th century fundamentalistic worldview that the Old Testament is generally literal. This is basically the the view of the gospel that I grew up with in the 80s, and I think we've moved past it in a lot of ways. But I think there are some people who who take a lot of this what I said uh, still is the case. Now let's look at how scholars, modern scholars, see the Bible. And I'm not talking about real critical scholars. I'm trying to take the best of, of LDS scholars, Christian scholars, uh, believing, believing scholars for the most part. So I'm going to try to keep the information I share in this episode pretty basic. I'm not going to push the, the edges too far. I'm going to keep it at at the areas that, that I think most LDS scholars uh, would agree on. E- even the fair Mormon apologists generally, I think, would, would agree with the take that I'm going to give here on the Old Testament. So in the 19th century, German, late 19th century, German scholars identified some interesting things about the Bible, and this formed the basis of the documentary hypothesis and, and the modern field of Bible textual criticism. And when I say criticism, I don't mean like being critical of the Bible. I just mean analyzing the the text of the Bible to understand where it came from and, and like who might be the author, what time period it was written in, where, uh, all these things. Not all scholars will take this documentary hypothesis completely. There, there's some issues to it. But I think most of the issues actually take us further away from the traditional view. They don't take us back to the traditional view. Okay, so... The, the Bible, the first five books of the, of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the, or the Jewish Torah came from four primary sources. 
J, the J source, which comes from the Hebrew tetragrammaton YHWH, pronounced Yahweh or Yehovah or Jehovah by by Germans. And and we, we call this Jehovah in the LDS faith. So anywhere in the King James Bible where you see Lord all capitalized, all four letters capitalized, L-O-R-D, that is standing for that Y-H-W-H Hebrew tetragrammaton that is uh, classic for the the J source. So the J source was written somewhere uh, about 900 BC. Both the J source and the E source are the are the oldest, coming around somewhere around 900 BC, maybe up to 1000 BC, maybe or a little earlier, like or, or later, like 800 BC in that time period. I think King David is going to be roughly 1000 BC, so that that gives you kind of the the general marker. And so this was after King David. The Jesus, the deity is anthropomorphic. Some people call it a, an earthy god. Uh, god is is walking and talking and visiting with humans in in the Genesis stories. This is a polytheistic uh, culture and community that that wrote this story. So they recognize there are many gods and, you know, Syria had a god and Egypt had a god and they had a god. Their god was Yahweh. And then there's, you know, we have female gods like Asherah and that's kind of where we get some of our heavenly mother. We, we think maybe that's a ancient view. Female divinity among the gods in polytheistic cultures certainly is ancient, but tying that into like that King Follett mother in heaven doctrine is is probably a lot different. I know I'm butchering this a little bit, so please forgive me. I think I'm giving you a, a broad enough overview that it's not too inaccurate, but seek out sources yourself to verify this information. Uh, a lot of what I learned was from, from there's a Yale online course from Christine Hayes that's fabulous, and there's a Audible great courses uh, from, from a Vanderbilt professor, Jill Levine. But also from LDS sources like David Bakavoy, his book on the Old Testament was fabulous. I think that many other informed scholars view these issues the same as him. Grant Hardy is another faithful LDS scholar that I've heard him talk about these things. He has a course on Audible on the great courses also. So so the E source came also about the same time period as the J source and the E source might have come from the Northern Kingdom, and some of their stories are a little bit different and seem to reflect their status, contrasting with the Southern Kingdom just a little bit. And their god, they called their god El, or the plural honorific form Elohim. So that's the E source and the J source, then they were combined. And then the P source comes in, and this is in the exilic period. The, the exilic, the exile was kind of the, the biggest event in, in Israel history around 555 or so BC. The northern kingdom had already been, been destroyed by Syria a hundred years previously and kind of, and those people were all lost. And now we just have Judah as Israel in the southern kingdom. And then Babylonians came in and, and, destroyed the temple and took them, took the elite in, in exile back to Babylon. And that was just a real uh, difficult time period. And a lot of stuff is happening then. And so the, this is what we call the exilic period. And this is like the, the 550 to 600 BC time period. And that's when the P source, our third source comes in, the priestly source. Now, the priestly source the Israelites had now kind of evolved into a monotheistic culture, a more modern culture. And the P source has the monotheistic God, a God that's less anthropomorphic like the, like the J source and more of a cosmological, powerful God controlling the universe from afar. And you can kind of see this in the, the Genesis one and Genesis two. Genesis one is the P source. And God, you know, is kind of more in the heavens. And then Genesis 2 is the J source, and God is down on the earth in the Garden of Eden with the humans. And, the, and you can kind of see, see this pattern all through Genesis in these two different sources. Another example of, of the differences are, is, is in the Noah's flood. In the J source, everyone knows Noah brought two of each animal on the ark, right? And because after they got 
finished after they finished with the flood and came off the ark they had to have the male and female to perpetuate the species but if you if you read it closely the j source in the noah's flood story has of the clean animals they took seven of each and that was because they needed these to to sacrifice then the p source comes along and clarifies that there was only two of everything including the clean animals and, and it seems to be a reaction like the p source is reading the j source and saying no they got it wrong and i'm going to make sure that you understand so they're they're reacting to this and the reason the reason that it's important for them that there were only two of each animals is because they don't want they don't want to view ancient Israel doing sacrifices at all like this because they want to track their authority to Moses who came after Noah obviously and, and Mo Moses is where they they believe he he's the first one who saw God and and learned his name of Yahweh and so the peace source will only refer to Yahweh starting with Moses and then the peacers will only acknowledge that the sacrifices and the rest of the the law of Moses kind of religion that they have started with Moses and then received they inherited that authority so it was important for them to to identify that authority coming in the scriptures with Moses now we have the last source the d source standing for the deuteronomist history and so the d source wrote deuteronomy Joshua Judges 1st and 2nd Samuel and this was also written in the exilic period about 500 BC and scholars sometimes refer to Deuteronomy as a pious fraud and that's an important term for scripture pious fraud is is when someone will write scripture and then attribute it to someone else at a earlier or more ancient time period sometimes so that they can write prophecies that have already taken place and so it'll appear it'll appear that someone ancient was doing a prophecy that came fulfilled or they want to attribute the writing to someone more famous like a, a prophet's name that everybody would recognize so that people would give more weight to the scripture and Deuteronomy is claims to have been written by Moses but we know that that would be impossible because it's written in a later time period then a few other authorship issues in the Old Testament Isaiah lived around 700 BC and he uh, wrote some of Isaiah, but a large portion of Isaiah was was written later. And people break this up and call it Deutero Isaiah and, and Trito Isaiah, Isaiah 3, Isaiah 2, 3, let's call it that. And the later Isaiah was written, you know, in the exilic period around 500 B, 550 BC. And then the third Isaiah came even even more recent than that. And that's a problem for the Book of Mormon because Nephi is quoting Isaiah and quoting Deutero-Isaiah, which seems fine because if we think of Isaiah coming 100 years before Nephi left the Old World, around 600 BC, but in actuality, the modern scholarship shows that this portion of Isaiah was written later, and so it would have been impossible for Nephi to have access to it. And then uh, one more issue that's kind of interesting, not not a huge deal, but interesting, is Daniel is said to have been an exilic prophet. We know the stories of Daniel and, and King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and very inspiring stories. But this also is said to have been written in the like 200 BC to 150 BC, and that's why some of his prophecies seem to have been nailed right on because he's writing about things that you know he's writing about king cyrus i believe that came and freed the the israelites out of uh the, the crushed the babylonians and freed the israelites to go back home and this was a glorious time and daniel is prophesying this but it actually didn't he didn't write it before it happened he wrote it after, and so it's not quite as impressive, the, the prophecy. And this is another book that we call a pious fraud. So a lot of this, you might be saying, okay, that's all interesting, but not a huge deal. It doesn't affect my LDS testimony a lot. And that's that, that's good. That that I agree with that. I think the biggest issue for the, for the fundamentalistic worldview is that these 
scriptures came much later than we expect, um, not from Moses. So we have the idea that they were revealed to Moses. And if they are not revealed to Moses, then you might wonder, are they revealed to are they revealed in that God-breathed way to a, to a later prophet? If so, who is that, and when, and why, and why didn't they explain the, the revelation process? Also, a lot of these stories, they seem to just have evolved over time. A lot of them have similar stories that, that came out of Syria and, and Babylonia and Egypt, and so it, it appears that the Israelites are reacting to other people's stories like okay you say that god created the earth this way and and i'm gonna write it in saying that god created the earth and kind of use your same framework but then add in my own uh ideas to prove that that israel is god's people and that our religion is true and so it just moves you into a an idea that maybe we should be taking these stories a little bit more metaphorically I think a lot of people, and I used to hold this view until pretty recently, have the idea that a lot of these stories existed orally and were real true stories that people, you know, Adam and Eve passed down. And, and so these stories about Adam and Eve were passed down generations, 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 hundreds of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, and then finally written on paper whenever. I guess it doesn't really matter. I mean, whether it's 500 BC, 1000 BC, or, or, Moses might have lived around 1200 BC. So you might think it doesn't matter when they were actually written if they were stories that already existed. But I think my understanding is that scholars believe that's impossible because orally transmitted stories and histories are usually done through poem and song. And we don't really have any examples of these existing as, as poems. Now, there's a the oldest, I think the oldest aspect of the, of the Bible is the Song of Miriam that's, I believe, part of Deuteronomy. And it's, it's estimated to be as old as from 1200 or 1300 BC. So that's an example of something that's maybe stayed coherent as a poem or song for a couple hundred years before it was written. But, even that is not rock solid, and there doesn't seem to be other examples of similar orally transmitted stories among the, the stories of Genesis and so forth. Another issue might be the contradictions between the concept of God, between El of the E source and, and Yahweh of the J source and the P sources God. They seem to, they seem to be coming from cultures and people who had very different ideas of God. And so that doesn't completely fit with the, with the LDS revealed text model, prophet model. Another issue is the prehistory. Genesis 1 through 11 is referred to as prehistory because it's about stories that existed 2000 BC and, and more ancient during time periods when we don't really have any human history at all. And these stories are really, really unlike everything else. The Adam and Eve story, the Noah's Flood story, the Tower of Babel story, they're all written to kind of explain scientific or naturalistic explanations of, of questions of how did man get here? Questions of how did, why are there different languages? Why are there different people? And so Tower of Babel explains that, right? And so these stories more feel like myths of ancient cultures that shouldn't be taken literally, that we have humans living to 900 years. We have that really kind of wild story of gods coming down and procreating with humans and, and creating this new race of giants. And that, that also shows that polytheistic worldview in that passage. So the prehistory, that definitely is something that kind of makes you kind of makes you wonder how we should view these stories. Uh, we have Abraham and Isaac, the great patriarchs, and those stories are, are really interesting. And I think scholars are mixed on whether those are based in any reality at all. On one end, you say there's no evidence that these people existed and there's no history that's written that could verify this or anything. But then you say, well, why would 
Israelites create foundation stories that have their great patriarchs doing kind of foolish things or, or, or think they're not superheroes, you know, they're, they're, they're making mistakes and they're doing things that you might not, you might not be super proud of, of, of having as the, the fathers of your religion and your nation. So interesting idea to think about. Richard Friedman is a believing Jewish scholar that talks about the Exodus, and he acknowledges that there's there's no evidence of two million people wandering, uh, of being in captivity in Egypt, or in leaving Egypt suddenly, or in wandering through the, the wilderness for 40 years, and also certainly not in the the event of taking over Canaan. There's the Battle of Jericho, and Jericho is kind of a ghost town as far as I understand. It was abandoned many centuries, I think, earlier than this. And so these people are kind of wondering, how did Jericho get abandoned? And so here's a story that explains it. And there doesn't seem to be any cultural or linguistic or archaeological evidence that there was any sort of takeover in the land of Canaan or Israel. And actually, when you read the Bible, even though in Joshua, they come in and they commit genocide and just kill everybody and take it all over. They, they conquer every single city all across Israel, and then they divide it up into the 12 kingdoms. And you kind of think, okay, now we're going to see the history of Israel unfold. But then you go into Judges, and it's like this 300-year time period up until the period of King David. And the, that period looks like there's no organization at all and there doesn't need to even it doesn't seem to fit at all with that story that you just read in Joshua. So Richard Friedman acknowledges these these historical issues but he still thinks that there's that there's some an element of truth to this that there that there was a real person named Moses that took some people out of Egypt into Israel and he believes maybe they evolved into the Levites. Okay, so some specific LDS or Book of Mormon issues, like we've kind of mentioned already, the the Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah issue is one. We'll talk about that in our Book of Mormon episodes. The other is that this concept of the brass plates, because Nephi left in 600 BC and had all the, the scriptures written on brass plates, but yet this documentary hypothesis is suggesting that a lot of these didn't come together until later after Nephi would have left. And certainly it would have been at a minimum kind of brand new and seems anachronistic that they all would have been written together on one set of collection like the brass plates. Another is the Jaredites seem to be relying on a literal Tower of Babel story. And we'll get into these issues later in the Book of Mormon episodes. Another issue is proof texting. Let's talk about that for a minute. Proof texting is when you read the scriptures and you take one verse or one one concept and take it out of context, out of the original author's, you know, meaning and attribute a meaning that you want to apply it to. We do that with Ezekiel thirty seven sixteen, showing that you know the stick of Joseph and Judah and the stick of Joseph is the Book of Mormon. We do it with Job nineteen twenty six on the resurrection, Jeremiah one five on the preexistence. So scholars will look at those verses and say that they're talking about something different than what we're we're meaning it for. This is done in the New Testament. Matthew is called the great proof texter, and Jesus is even doing some proof texting. In Matthew, we have the beautiful Isaiah, the suffering servant verses with, uh, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our iniquities, and applying that to Jesus Christ. And then we do that with Isaiah 7.14, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And what a beautiful name for deity and for Jesus Christ, God with us. But we can break down Isaiah and we can break down these other authors and say that they, they weren't thinking of of these meanings when they wrote these scriptures. And, and we're applying that. And there's a lot of criticism towards our Sunday school materials and, and, and church materials that we proof text and it's garbage and it's nonsense. And 
In a way, I don't mind it because Nephi taught us to liken the scriptures to ourselves, and that is basically what proof texting is. It's taking the original intent of the author and maybe twisting it a little and, uh, and reinventing it, transforming it, applying it to a more modern, to, to our, to our context. And that's great. So I find nothing wrong with that. And let's proof text away. But I think a more intellectually viable way to do that would be to say, Okay, here's Job 19.26, or here's Isaiah 7.14, and we don't think that Isaiah was talking about Jesus Christ when he said this verse, but we like to reimagine it as applying to Jesus Christ. And that's a, I think that's a great way to apply scriptures and to teach scriptures. And along the lines of this idea of Isaiah prophesying of Christ, we have high Christology in and when I say high Christology, I mean the view that Jesus is God and the, the teachings of Jesus Christ that sometimes aren't even there in the New Testament, or at least in the Synoptic Gospels. A lot of times they're concepts that came later on in the Christian movement. And we have this doctrine teaching of, in the Joseph Smith translation, we have Adam, Enoch, Noah, Moses, all teaching doctrine of Jesus Christ. In the Book of Mormon, Nephi is claiming that Isaiah is doing it. And then we also have references to Zenus, Old Testament prophets, Zenus, Zenic, and even Moses is doing it. And then also there's that implication that there, that it's all over the Old Testament, but that the plain and precious parts were, were taken out. The, the Book of Mormon is kind of showing us this is what the Old Testament should look like if the plain and precious parts weren't removed with the high Christology all through there. And, that's a little bit anachronistic, and there's also ways to make sense of that issue, and we'll talk about that in our Book of Mormon content episode, which should be a good one. Okay, let's talk about evolution. What we know from science, and I'm not going to—evolution is a controversial topic, and I'm not going to hammer on it and say that you, you absolutely have to believe in every aspect of evolution as modern science teaches it or— or that you're not informed or, or that you're ignorant. I think there are, there are reasonable and intellectual people who are taking some variances from the, the pure science that's being taught. But I think there's some facts related to evolution science that we absolutely need to incorporate or we're just doing ourselves and our children an extreme disservice by just not acknowledging the world as it is. And that's it, that the earth is very old, billions of years old. There's been life and death on earth for billions of years. Humans have existed for a long time, at least 100,000 years or longer. We started out as hunter-gatherer societies, and then we spread out across the earth. We started out in Africa, and the first humans had black skin, and then skin color changed as we adapted to climate in different areas. We started forming civilizations independently in the Near East, in, in China, in, Euro in Europe, and the Americas starting, you know, somewhere 10,000 BC is when we started forming civilizations. And so long, 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 long before Adam was identified in Genesis at, at about 4,000 BC, humans have been existing and speaking in different language and doing agriculture and living in cities. And so this, I think this is important to recognize. It makes the, the Adam and Eve story impossible to be literal. It makes the Noah's flood story impossible. We don't see any evidence of, you know, animals life being interrupted during that time period. It makes the Tower of Babel story impossible in terms of what it means literally. It makes our Adam and I Amen in Missouri story impossible. It makes the curse of Cain and curse of Ham Explanations for black skin, impossible. Stephen Peck is a BYU biology professor who believes in evolution, and he thinks it's beautiful and shows the expansiveness of God. And he kind of gives this metaphor of think of two computer programmers, and, and which one is a better computer programmer? One programmer writes code to create the most amazing video game in the world, okay? And then another programmer creates code that he kicks it off, and then that code goes on to create 
every single video game that exists in the whole entire world, which is a better computer programmer. And what he's doing is kind of suggesting that God created the world through this evolution process by just kind of kicking it off and and letting it unfold. And again, I don't think that you absolutely have to agree that humans evolved from apes. I'm not adamant on that. I personally do believe that. It's taught at BYU, and that's what I was taught at BYU, and so I'm fine with that. But if you don't believe that, that's fine also. But what I think is important to understand is just that this evolutionary process that's been going on for billions of years is actual science, and that humans have at least existed for 100,000 years or for a very, very long time. And let's not be awkward with each other or with our children in talking about how humans have have grown and progressed, if you don't want to use the word evolution, but just grown from from the very primitive and unevolved, I can't do it without saying that word evolved, but the the very unevolved form of humans that living 100,000 years ago and how we you know, we learned different things and figured out how to learn, make tools and figured out how to do fire and, and, and not always have to worry how it reconciles with Adam and Eve because they were immediately in the Genesis, they were immediately tilling the earth and doing agriculture. And, and so, so there's this tension that we have where we, we don't want to talk about humans the way that the rest of the world talks about human beings. Which is a very, which is a very insightful and meaningful way to talk about ourselves, and, and it gives insights into ourselves to know that you know, fifty thousand years ago, our ancestors were doing this, and eighty thousand years ago, they were doing this, instead of blocking that four thousand years ago with Adam and Eve. It just creates an unnecessary tension between science and religion that that I don't think needs to exist. Then, along with the physical science of evolution, is also this idea that we have evolution of ideas and humans are progressing and evolving and our our ideas evolve and our, our ideas of God and of religion evolve and we started out polytheistic and we believe that you know our God was going to battle against your God and whoever won that's who won the war and then then we shift into a monotheistic God we see with the ancient Israelites and but that God still kind of is behaving, more like these gods that are that are jealous and and warrior gods and then we and then we start to see god teaching these people that they need to love their enemies and we see a little bit more of our modern views of religion creep in and and then we have the gospel of jesus christ and and that opens up religion to all people it's not just our people that are the chosen people but god is for all people and then we have the doctrine of the atonement, and you can kind of see how ideas just kind of go from here to there to there between these Christian Christian theologians that are evolving these ideas of atonement, and then and then you have Joseph Smith who's syncretizing all of the best ideas and putting it forward in our religion, and this is kind of how I see the history of religion, and I, I don't think the the concept of restoration and a liter- restoration of doctrine in a literal way makes sense with this with this worldview that we kind of see throughout history so god created the world but he did it through evolution and he did it in a way that his involvement is essentially imperceptible and i think that gives us real insight into god and and what he's about and it reminds me of the story that my daughter shared one time. My daughters were babysitting this cute little two-year-old named Iris, and they were very young themselves, but they're babysitting, and Iris's mother gave them very specific instructions. Feed her and take care of her, but then when it gets to be 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock is her bedtime, and she hates going to bed, and she's going to kick and scream and yell and cry, and she's going to to try to persuade you in any way she possibly can to, to get her out of bed. So you have to lock the door and just let her cry it out. And so my daughters are just like, can we do this? I don't know. And so they, they tuck her in bed at 8 o'clock, but they just don't have the heart to, to lock the door. And they go back and they're watching TV. A few minutes later, sweet little olive-skinned, big-eyed Iris comes walking out in her sleeper, just as we all expected. 
So they go back and, and tug her back into bed. And this time they lock the door and they sit out in the hallway and they hear Iris get up and they can hear her trying to open the door. And then she's calling out, calling out. And they just, her sweet little voice, they just can't say no. So they let her out. They play with her some more, put her back in. You know, you know how this is going to go back and forth. Finally, they get up the courage to withstand poor Iris's, um, calls and she starts crying and she's sobbing and they are just sitting out in the hallway looking at each other and just trying to come up with all the courage that they can to withstand this crying and to let Iris just fall asleep without intervening. And then finally, Iris does, she falls asleep. And I think of this story and then I think about God and I'm a theist. I believe in God. But we have this problem of evil. We've got all these problems in our world. We have child trafficking. We have cancer. We have, we have parents that, that lose children and children that lose parents and so much suffering and so, so much, so many hard things. And would a God that's loving just let, sit there and let it all happen? And the only way that I can make sense of this problem of evil is to just, just accept the fact somehow that God chooses not to intervene. I don't know if he can't intervene. I, I don't like to believe in a God that can't intervene, but I guess I can believe in a God that chooses not to intervene for some reason that I'm not understanding, something about our free agency, something about he has to let us work it out on our own. And so that's how I make sense of things. And I apply that to religion. I think that God is kind of letting us work it out. And we've got issues with our historical problems in religion, but it's because God is not intervening and he's just letting us work it out. Peter Enns is one of my favorite Christian scholars. He does a podcast and he's written some books and he he grew up as an evangelical with a very literal worldview of the Bible. And then he went to Bible school and he, he had a faith crisis because he started studying, you know, the same thing that we're talking about today and realized it didn't fit his paradigm. And so he moved into a more view of liberal Christianity. And he talks about like the, the genocide in the, in the book of Joshua, where the Israelites go in and just kill men, women, and children, and they're told by God to do it. And this story is very problematic for people who read the Bible, and it should be, because we shouldn't believe that God is telling us to commit genocide. And, and we've seen this in our history as recent as Hitler and other evil political regimes, and it's not right. And even if people are telling them that, telling us that God is telling them to do it, we shouldn't believe it. And in the story in the Bible, the Israelites tell us that God tells them to kill men, women, and children to, to conquer the land of Canaan. And Pete Enns says, says he doesn't believe this. For one, there's no evidence that it really happened. Uh, that's what we mentioned earlier in this episode. And then two, it just doesn't sound like something that God would have people do. And Richard Bushman was asked this, LDS scholar Richard Bushman, and he asked if he would take a similar position on this genocide story as Pete ends. And he said, yeah, I would take a position very much like that. But I would also say, we have to try to understand why people would write that scripture that way. What is it? What kind of life situation leads you to feel that God is helping you to destroy your enemy and appreciate there are some people's lives so desperate, so harried, so pressured, so hopeless that they can only find satisfaction with a God who is going to avenge themselves from their enemies. You think of the ways the Jews were treated in Germany and you see people wiped out that way. You get in an apocalyptic frame of mind and you want God to step in and punish these people. And one of the ways that religion services people is to relieve the anxiety and the anger they have by displacing it onto God. So it's not that they're wrong or evil but they're using religion to help them in their life situation. I want to be very empathetic to people who talk that way. And a uh, great quote, Richard Bushman. And Peter ends uh, the money quote from his book, The Bible Tells Me So, is that the Bible is what it looks like when God lets his children tell the story. And that just nails it for me. And then he gives an anecdote of how he used to tell stories about his dad that weren't exactly accurate. And my second grade son, 
was had an assignment to write a kind of a biography about his father and he did it and it was beautiful and was it true with a capital t no there was some things that he got wrong he misremembered different stories and he didn't include a lot of important aspects of my personality so if you were to read his story you wouldn't really totally get a picture of me but it was the story about me and him he was right there with me in all these stories and it's a beautiful and true story with a with a lowercase t true and if i was to tell him that's a bad story you don't know your father very well i would be a bad father and if god told the israelites that they don't know their god very well and their story about him is just a bunch of bs and we should trash it he would be a bad god it's a it's a beautiful story of the ancient israelites engagement and involvement with god just like pn says it's what it looks like when god lets his children tell the story and let's take it a step further and let's say religion is what it looks like when god lets his people manage religion German scholars did a lot of this work on the Bible. In German, there's two words for history. Geist, oh boy. Geisteste, Geisteste, and history. And history has to do with facts and dates and things that can actually be proven. And Geisteste has to do with reports, stories, and tales that relate to history. So German scholars created the word Heilgeschichte, Combining the words Heil, meaning holy, and Geschichte, translated into English as salvation history or sacred history. And that's a much better way, I think, to look at the Bible. From the Gutenberg Project, here's this quote. The style of scriptural hermeneutics within liberal theology, and we've talked about this liberal Christianity, liberal theology is often characterized as non-propositional. This means the Bible is not considered a collection of factual statements, but instead an anthology that documents the human author's beliefs and feelings about God at the time of its writing, within a historical or cultural context. Marcus Borg, let's get a couple Marcus Borg quotes here. Just as this view of the Bible does not deny the reality of God, it does not deny that the Bible is inspired by God, but it understands inspiration differently. It refers to the movement of the Spirit in the lives of the people who produce the Bible. The emphasis is not upon words inspired by God, but on people moved by their experience of the Spirit. And so we're going to talk about the Book of Mormon being inspired, and the Joseph Smith translation being inspired, and the Book of Abraham being inspired, and that's what that's the definition I'm going to use that I think is most appropriate, is that it refers to the movement of the Spirit in the lives of the people who are interacting with the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham. Also from Marcus Borg, he's calling the Bible a sacrament. He says, by a sacramental approach, I mean seeing the Bible as sacrament. A sacrament is a finite, physical, visible mediator of the sacred, a means whereby the sacred becomes present to us. A sacrament is a via, vehicle or vessel of the sacred. And in the LDS faith, in addition to the bread and water sacrament, we might call garments a sacrament. Garments are natural, human-made objects, but we believe them to be sacred. I hear a lot of people talk about, if we say scripture is not historical, then and a lot of times this comes out in Book of Mormon historicity discussions, and people say, well, why not just le read Lord of the Rings? And so I would say regular clothing is to garments as Lord of the Rings is to LDS scripture. Both we can consider naturalistic objects, and both can be helpful and useful, but only one of them we declare sacred and consider a sacrament, and that's our scripture, and not Lord of the Rings. Okay, we're winding down here, and I want to I wanna share with you my testimony and my view of the Old Testament. I love it. When my wife taught gospel doctrine here in our ward uh, for several years, and just a few years ago when we did Old Testament, um, we were going into that year, and we used to like to plan the lessons together and read the material and talk about it and try to come up with what were the, the best parts of the material to focus on. And going into the Old Testament, I, I was just really nervous because I had never really taken the Old Testament that seriously. And a lot of the stories just seemed 
so old and weird and not applicable. And I just didn't get it yet, I guess. But that year was just amazing. Every week, it just seemed like the lesson material that we read in the scriptures, there there was always just something so beautiful and inspiring. And I just want to kind of touch on some of those that are that are my favorite to show you why, even though I don't believe in the same traditional way, why these stories are just as meaningful, if not more meaningful to me now within this new paradigm. Let's start with Adam and Eve. I love the Adam and Eve story, and I, I love going to temple weddings and and picturing them as Adam and Eve as they as they come out of the temple together. You know, just like Adam and Eve walking out of the the Garden of Eden, and it's so romantic. The Adam and Eve story. It's it's so perfect that in this first story we see. Adam choosing his spouse over God. What an interesting way to start your scripture story as in the Bible. And it's exactly right on that we should we should treat our spouse like that and, and choose our spouse over everything. And I love how Joseph Smith expanded the story. You know, Joseph Smith, he, he brings us new information about Adam and Eve, and I love how he's showing them working together, teaching their children together, and they're doing every to get everything together. And it's just such a model to me as, as marriage, and it's romantic, and I love it. Jordan Peterson has a really interesting take on Adam and Eve, and I just highly recommend his Old Testament podcast series that just has so many inspiring messages breaking down these Old Testament stories and, and from a kind of evolutionary standpoint, how we as humans, ancient humans, collected kind of the most insightful information and codified it in these in these myths and stories as a way to teach each other and and how to live the right way and how to view how to view life the right way. And he he looks at the garden state as like the the humans before they evolved into into consciousness and when we were still animalistic and he he's seen Eve take the fruit, and he and that's kind of a symbol of when humans became aw awake and conscious and aware. And Eve takes the fruit, and he even kind of theorizes that possibly females evolved first because females evolved needing to care for both themselves and their children, but males evolved maybe more just looking out for themselves. And so he theorizes that maybe females' brains had to work harder to to do that. And so they might have um, became aware first. And so it's this it's this symbol of the female evolving first and then telling the male, hey, we're partners here and we've got all these problems. We've got all these predators and I need your help. So I need you to eat this fruit. I need you to get aware also so that we can do this together. And then he goes on, he has great takes on Cain and Abel and Noah's flood and Abraham and sacrifice. So I highly recommend that, that podcast series from him. I love the passage in Jeremiah 29 when the Israelites were taken captive into Babylon and they'd just been humiliated. They thought they were God's people and the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple and took them away. And here they were, they thought they were God's people, and they were coming out of the golden age of, of King David and Solomon, and then now they're nothing. They're wanting to hear the false prophet's message, which is that this is just going to be a short time and we're going to be back on top. But Jeremiah, the true prophet, tells them that, no, this is going to be more permanent. And he says, Build ye houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye, that ye may be increased there, and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whether, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. And I love Buddhist messages, and, and Buddhism teaches us that we don't need to dump our religion and become Buddhist. We can, we can be a Buddhist Mormon, for example. And I'm a Buddhist Mormon, and I, I love to find Buddhist messages in the scriptures and, and this idea that, this idea that we have suffering 
but we can bear it through through the Lord and that he can give us strength to bear these things and advises us to be patient. We we just want the suffering to be over with. We want to distract ourselves or look for short-term solutions when so often the, the solution is a long-term solution and to just be, just to sit there and be still, be present and handle your suffering and enjoy the journey and be in the moment. And I love that message. I love the message of Zelophehad's daughters where their father had died and their property went to their uncle, I believe, because women had no rights and they couldn't own property. And they went to Moses and they said, you got this wrong. Um, please go back to God to see if there's, uh, if you can change this. And Moses, you know, he doesn't say, I'm the man, I'm the prophet, I know what I'm doing, I was there, you weren't, I'm the patriarchy, you know, just shut up and listen. He is humble and he says, okay, let's take it back to God and see what God says. And guess what? God sides with Zelophehad's daughters. What a beautiful and progressive message that we can take even today. If we're in charge of something and people that we're serving come to us with an issue that we can be humble and try to reconcile issues as they come up. I love Jacob's wrestle with God and sometimes interpreted as an angel, sometimes as a God, but I like to imagine he's wrestling with God. And the way I'm going to tell this story kind of, kind of tells you the time and place I'm in right now, but I view this as like the ultimate midlife crisis story where Jacob has lived a lot and he's accumulated some some property and he's had some ups and downs and he's he's facing his demons. He's got his brother Esau waiting for him on the other side of the river, just waiting to destroy him and his and kill his wife's and property. And he's wrestling with God and facing his insecurities and wondering, you know, how did I get myself in this position? And he he prays to God and he wrestles with God all night and the the wrestle gets so intense that God breaks his hip, and but he keeps wrestling, and he wrestles him to a draw. Because you probably can't beat God, but maybe if you try your best, you can wrestle God to a draw, to a tie. And so he asks God for a blessing, and God gives him a new name of Israel that means wrestle with God. And he gives him his blessing, and everything works out in the end with his brother Esau. And what a beautiful story that, and they thought of Israel as the name for themselves. Wrestle with God, not chosen by God or God's best people, but the people that wrestle with God. And I think if you're, I think if you're real with yourself, that life is a wrestle and faith is a wrestle. And it feels like a wrestle with God sometimes. And the, the Old Testament reads like a people that were in a wrestle with God. And, I, I just love that that rawness of that concept of of wrestling with God and and what we can learn from that. I love how the scriptures portray a God that we can we can bargain with and we can logic with and we can even change his mind. Moses, God was about to destroy all the Israelites for murmuring in the wilderness and and Moses prays to him and says, God, if you do this now, after leading all these people out of Egypt and beating Egypt and beating their God, and, and here we are, and if you if you turn on your people now and kill them all now, everybody's going to think you're the, you're the dumbest God ever. And so, why don't you just give them another chance and see what happens? And God God agrees, and He forgives the Israelites and lets them try again. And again, we see the same idea in Abraham, where in the city of Sodom, God is going to destroy the city. And Abraham says, what if I find 50 people? Could you spare it then? And, and God says, okay. And then Adam or Abraham looks around and he's like, okay, 45. Uh, okay, 40. Yeah, 30. Okay, 20, 10. And, and Abraham is bargaining with God. And from a modern sensibility and, you know, a scholarly and modern view, this kind of seems silly, but I think deep down we like to imagine a God that we can dialogue with and we can say this is the problems in our life and this is what I need and God can you can you 
can you change this and can you can you maybe change the outcomes of of things that look like they're permanent right now and we want to be able to to feel like we that we have a god who can listen to us and that we can uh, have that kind of relationship with the story of david and goliath what an inspiring story that is he's going up against the the giant as a huge underdog and he uses his his own intellect and his own capabilities but also his faith in god to defeat goliath and then david later in life when he's made some bad dis- bad decisions some bad choices and and he's he's done some very serious uh, sin and nathan the prophet is telling him this parable of the ewe lamb and david's just like eating it up just like yeah let's get this guy he's he's a bad person whoever's stealing this ewe lamb needs to be punished and then Nathan turns it on him. You are that man. And boom, you just, you just, it's almost like you can see it in a movie, like the moment it, it hits David that he is that guy. And, and liking in the scriptures to ourselves, I am that man. You are that man. What am I doing in my life that I'm not aware of that I think only other people are doing wrong, but it's actually me? What do I need to change? in my relationships and what do I need to repent of to put myself more in line with God and more in line with what David knew he should have been doing. Terrell Givens and Thomas Wayman did a really interesting interview on the Faith Matters podcast where they're talking about what Joe Smith was doing with the restoration and and they talk about how he brought back a lot of the ideas from the Old Testament that maybe were being under underserved, underutilized in the in the Christian market of the day, of the concept of Zion and temple and covenant and and that works based religion that you see in the Old Testament. And I'm so grateful that Joe Smith restored those truths and that we have that. I love that part of our religion and. Grant Hardy at the Fair Mormon Conference a couple years ago, Grant Hardy was talking about his love for the Old Testament, and he mentioned that if he wasn't a Mormon or wasn't a Latter Day Saint, it's it's hard for me to get used to this terminology. I, I'm I want to do it the right way and, and use Latter Day Saint and use the proper name of the church, but it's taken me a while, especially now that we're on sabbatical from church and we're not around other. Latter-day Saints and, and getting used to this way of speaking all the time. So Grant Hardy says, if I wasn't a Latter-day Saint, I would be, a, I think I'd be a Jew. And I, I remember being really taken back. Like, why wouldn't he say he'd be a Catholic or Protestant? And and he compares like the, the Latter-day Saint community and, and how, and how we are to the Jewish community and how it's, it's a, it's a real strong identity and we're a people that think we're God's people and perceive ourselves as God's people. And and he says, the Old Testament is above all the story of a relationship between Yahweh and his people. God chose Israel and called them to to lives of holiness and justice, promising that through them he would bless the entire world. It was something of an up and down relationship characterized by kindness and mercy on God's part, but also by frustration and even anger at sin and unfaithfulness. This is our story as well. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we don't have a monopoly on truth or on goodness, though we have quite a bit of both. But we have been called to be God's people in the latter days to be holy and just as He is, to be a light to the nations, Church leaders, the scriptures, and personal revelation provide a solid foundation, but we still have a lot to learn. Nevertheless, I believe that God is with us. So let's wrap up here. And I, I think you get the, the idea of how more information in science and history and scholarship can force us out of this literal paradigm into a more metaphorical paradigm but that also the, the truth and beauty is still there. It's, it's still just as inspiring and just as beautiful and just as true. So how, how do I see these stories? I see, I see everything probably prior to Abraham as being completely uh, figurative and, 
The temple itself tells us that we can view Adam and Eve metaphorically, and I think that's fine that we do. I, But it doesn't mean that that doesn't really dominate the way we think about them. When I read their stories and talk about their stories, I, I think about them and I talk about them as if they are real and and look for the insights that, that I can learn from, even though I, I view that as metaphorical. And so, and so the, down the same as Noah and the flood, and then we get to Abraham and the patriarchs, and I'm not so sure. I could be convinced either way, I guess, if they were real people. I think that the stories that we learn and the doctrines that we learn from them are real and valid, and the same goes for Moses. So I have no problem when people at church are talking about Moses or Abraham as a, as a literal person. It really doesn't even come across my mind to try to speak up, to argue with that, or to say why they can't be real people. I think if the only issue is when people are actually fighting whether or not they're real or literal. I think that the the Old Testament is a pattern for how to live our lives and how to seek God and understand spiritual truths. I love the Old Testament, and I hope that this is kind of a way that we've eased into the metaphorical paradigm a little bit, and now it's going to get interesting with the Book of Mormon. Thank you for listening to the end, and hope that you continue with us. Thanks. Thanks.